This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Strong, caring, honest. Three traits that Americans want in their congressmen. And three traits that define Harold Flemlasky. Harold Flemlasky for Congress. Bringing back honor, caring, and strength to Washington. Paid for by Flemlasky for Congress. Sure, Harold Flemlasky says he's honest. Fact. He flip-flopped on the issue of abortion in 1962 and has voted both for and against different tax proposals. Harold Flemlasky also says he's caring. Fact. He voted against medicine for children and stopped the Family Pet Medical Leave Act. Harold Flemlasky says he's strong. Fact. Doctors describe him as, quote, mildly overweight and as a person of, quote, average physical strength. Stop the lies from going to Washington. Vote Ernie Velveeta for Congress. Paid for by Velveeta for Congress. Hello? Hey, have you seen the latest Ernie Velveeta attack ad? Oh, no, not another one. Yeah, he's at it again, trying to make people believe that Harold Flemlasky isn't the right congressman for our area. Well, did he bring up the fact that Ernie Velveeta stole money from welfare to give to convicted murderers when he voted for more money for prisons? <laughs> no. How about the fact that he stole money from children when he didn't approve his son's allowance increase? <laughs> I guess he forgot to mention that one. And how about the fact that his name is also a crappy cheese? He didn't mention that either. Wow. I hope the residents of our area vote to cut the cheese in Congress. Damn straight, yo. Is Harold Flemlasky safe for your children? October 13th, 1979. Harold Flemlasky breaks his ankle in a water skiing accident. May 20th, 1987. Harold Flemlasky cuts his hand while slicing a bagel. January 3rd, 1992. Harold Flemlasky trips on a stump in his front yard. If Harold Flemlasky can't keep himself safe, how can he not kill your children? Paper by Velveeta for Congress. Velveeta, do you want your district to be represented by a man named Velveeta? <laughs> Nobody even likes Velveeta. The man is named after a cheese. A fake cheese. Cut the cheese in Congress and vote Flemlasky. Paid for by Flemlasky for Congress. Hello? Hey, have you seen the latest Flemlasky attack ad? Yeah, I did. Harold Flemlasky has spent millions of dollars making people believe they're <laughs> They elect someone named Velveeta. Right, but he keeps avoiding the real issues of this campaign, like Social Security, prescription drugs, and lockboxes. I know, and all he keeps saying is that Velveeta's a bad last name. What Harold Flemlasky forgets is the fact that he has the word phlegm right in his name. I mean, phlegm, that's way worse than Velveeta. Yeah, I know, and what would you rather have, a palate-pleasing piece of cheese or someone hawking a loogie into your mouth? Right. It's time to clear the phlegm from Congress. People should vote Ernie Velveeta. Damn straight, yo. People are my Velveeta for Congress! Your children will die. Paper by 
BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go to subscribe to Blaze TV. If you're watching on YouTube, like the video right this second. Make sure to follow as well. Angela Morabito is going to be here to break down yesterday's insane school report as it ties to COVID. That's a fascinating, fascinating piece of information. We'll preview John Fetterman's big debate tonight with Dr. Oz. But we start by doing the fall of the New York Times. I, look, I am here for you. I read the New York Times so you don't have to. It's torture. They don't pay me nearly enough to do it, but I do it anyway because I care about you. That's right. And this morning I was reading the New York Times and I thought to myself, this may be peak New York Times. This may be the day. Some would bring up, what about the denial of the Holodomor where millions died? And that was probably the peak of the New York Times, to be fair. But this morning might be in second. Why do I say that? Because we are close to the election. Only less, what, two weeks away from today? Is that right? Jeez. Two weeks away. And the New York Times is in full panic mode. They are in full do what, say whatever you can to make this election not turn in the direction it seems to be turning. And look, I can only take so much of this. It was just infuriating. Last night, it was the debate between uh, Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist. And I made the terrible mistake of reading the article. (laughs) And it was horrible from beginning to end. They wanted to give you a a few uh, things that happened during the debate. Let me walk you through some of them. And I, I ask you, honestly, how on earth did this sentence get past an editor? And I wonder sometimes... If the editor actually put it in, that's how bad the New York Times is these days. Here he goes. Uh, He accused, DeSantis, accused Mr. Christ of supporting abortion up until the moment of birth. That is a common Republican claim, but abortion until the moment of birth doesn't exist. It doesn't exist? Did we make it up? Is it a mythical creation? Now, you could say it's rare. You could say it doesn't happen all that often. You can't say it doesn't exist. And I ask you this, even if it didn't exist, shouldn't it still be illegal? You know, uh, if, uh, you know, Art the Clown from Terrifier 2, he's actually just a, a character in a movie. He's not a real clown. But still, we should have murderous clowns become illegal. That's something we should all agree on. But I honestly can't even believe this statement. What do you mean they don't exist? Let me give you... I don't know, the Gosnell case, for example. Read through the entire documents. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of pages. Let me give you a little excerpt and bring the room down into the bowels of hell for a moment. It's not fun. So I, I ask you to prepare yourself. Gosnell induced labor and sedated the mother who delivered a baby boy. Cross, one of the people in the room, saw a baby boy, uh, baby boy A, breathe and move. Cross told the baby, uh, told us the baby was 18 to 19 inches long and nearly the size of her own newborn daughter, who was six pounds, six ounces at birth. Even Gosnell commented on baby boy A's size, joking, this baby is big enough to walk around with me or walk me to the bus stop. Cross testified that she saw the doctor just slit the neck and place the remains in a plastic shoebox for disposal. Cross explained, question, Why did you take the photograph of this baby? By the way, in case you're wondering, the photograph is in the report. 
So if you want to get even darker, you can go look at it. I don't recommend it. Why did you take the photograph of this baby? Well, because it was big and it was wrong and we knew it. We knew something was wrong. Based on his size, hairline, muscle mass, subcutaneous tissue, well-developed area, and other characteristics, the neonatologist opined that the gestational age was at least 32 weeks. The entire report, of course, is filled with story after story after story after story after story after story of babies aborted the moment before birth, or in some cases, many cases, unfortunately, moments after the birth. This, of course, is one person, one doctor. Not every doctor is this psychopathic. But you have to ask yourself, how many, how many Kermit Gosnells are there? How many are there? He was particularly sloppy and still was able to do this for decades. How many are bending these rules? You ever stop and think about that? We get statistics and we just kind of take them in and we believe that this is, these happened at this many weeks, this many times. How many do we not know about? Remember, these are people that have no names yet, no social security numbers, no record of their existence whatsoever. How many Gosnells are there? The, uh, the grand jury asked that question. It is important to extend the statute of limitations on the murder cases here, uh, not only because of the seriousness of the offense, but also because the crime is hard to discover. Gosnell, we are convinced, committed hundreds of acts of infanticide. He got away with them for decades because they all took place inside his clinic. How many Gosnells are there? And once again, we're talking about just whether Charlie Crist wants to make these legal or not. He doesn't seem to need to take a stand on just saying, look, it doesn't happen that often, but if it's going to happen, it definitely shouldn't. We should limit it to much, much earlier than that. No, it's always just the choice of the mother, no matter at what point the abortion occurs. How many Gosnells are there out there? We, we don't know, but I guarantee he's not the only one. Another clip from the New York Times. Uh, DeSantis also said Mr. Chris supported dismemberment abortions, a pejorative term for procedures performed later in pregnancy that when they do happen are often prompted by medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormalities. You'll notice what they don't do there, which is tell you he was wrong. They're not saying uh, dismemberment abortion is a, is a bad description of what the procedure is. They're just saying it sounds kind of mean. And how can you make dismembering a baby look so mean? And they also say, by the way, they do happen. In fact, let's go to a pro-abortion uh, website and organization to tell you how often they do happen. They, uh, the nice name for them, by the way, is dilation and evacuation, D&E. Just call them D&E. You don't have to call them dismemberment, where you're dismembering the baby and then removing them from the woman. That's the process we're talking about here. But dismemberment is a pejorative. How can you be so pejorative about all that baby separation? I, it's just, uh, it's difficult to understand. Dilation and evacuation, D&E, is a safe abortion procedure. Not for the child, by the way. That accounts for the majority of second trimester abortions in the United States. So this is not just some one-off weird procedure. This is happening all the time. Let me give you one more example from the DeSantis debate. DeSantis gave a graphic and inaccurate description of gender-affirming care for transgendered children, suggesting falsely that doctors were mutilating minors. In reality, 
gender-affirming care, which major medical associations, including pediatric associations, endorse, primarily involves social support. Non-permanent treatments like puberty blockers, which Mr. DeSantis also denounced, and hormonal treatments. So remember all those videos of surgeons who were bragging to their DEI departments about how many times they did these surgeries? Remember all that? Don't think about it anymore. Erase it from your brain for just a second, because in reality, it's just social support. They're just being encouraging. Then you go over to the other side. You have the new prime minister uh, on the conservative party, not really conservative for the United States, but conservative party. He's getting into office. How do they treat him? Rishi Sunak's ascent is a breakthrough for, for, for diversity with privilege attached. You see, he's privileged. Just how rich is the new prime minister of Britain? If you were wondering on the scale whether skin color and ethnicity was going to outweigh class, sorry, you're rich. You don't get any of the benefits. You're a bad person. You're basically an evil, evil, evil white supremacist. Even if you're from India and you're dealing with Great Britain, does anyone know the history of these two countries? Interesting to call him a man of privilege after all that. And then you click on Nancy Pelosi. Now, Nancy Pelosi's got anyone in Pelosi's last dance. It's a nice glowing profile of Nancy Pelosi. Shockingly, completely different than the coverage of DeSantis or Dr. Oz or even the British prime minister. Now, the British prime minister is rich, 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 rich. He's, I don't know, maybe he's too rich. Maybe he's too privileged. Nancy Pelosi, she's described in the article. This is a quote. Mrs. Pelosi is a, an 82-year-old juggernaut in Armani. That's how they describe Nancy Pelosi. These are all real quotes. I'm not making these up. These are actually in a newspaper in the United States of America. Quote, her energy level amazes and inspires her troops. Yes, because I'm so surprised that one of her aides didn't come out on record and say, gosh, she's pretty lazy, never really gets out of bed. Uh, she's a bum. She's mean to us. Asking her aides, her troops, to identify her energy levels? Oh, the probing questions of the New York Times. What about a great quote from one of her allies? What do they think of Nancy Pelosi? Quote, she is masterful. That comes from Haley Stevens, a Michigan Democrat. And then... I give you this last quote because I don't know really what to make of it. It's one of the strangest things I've ever seen in a news story in my entire life. And I, I kid you not, I don't, I don't really know what to say about the quote I'm about to read you, but I want you to know I didn't make it up. This isn't something I'm doing for a joke. It's not a bit. It's really in the article. Quote, as she campaigned last week, she carried in her purse... A sausage <laughs> wrapped in a bow presented to her by a fan. If your 82-year-old relative is found with a sausage in their purse, they should go to a home immediately. What is the scenario that leads to you carrying around a sausage in your purse. And as I say it, please don't tell me the scenario that leads to you carrying around a sausage in your purse. This poor sausage. 
I guarantee you this, the purse is the best place that sausage ever will be. That was disturbing. (laughs) Look, we've been brainwashed into believing the only way to grow our money for retirement is to risk it in the stock market. And that's not true. You can reach your financial uh, goals and dreams without taking any unnecessary risks. Bank on yourself is something you probably don't know about. I don't know. Maybe you're smarter than me. I didn't know about it. It's something that's a different way to approach uh, your hard-earned money and where it goes. It's a retirement plan alternative that has never had a losing year in over 160 years. They provide guaranteed, predictable growth and retirement income with no luck, no skill, no guesswork required. So it's like made for me. No, no, no skill, no luck. Your plan doesn't go backward when the markets tumble. Both your principal and growth are locked in. This is tax-free retirement income, and you're in control of it. So if you want to get access to it for any real reason, you, you don't have to justify it to anybody. No questions asked. You can get it, and without government penalties or restrictions on how much you can take or when you can take it. Try doing that with a 401k or IRA. You can't. Get yourself some peace of mind today with Bank on Yourself. You can get a free report with all the details on how the Bank on Yourself strategy adds guarantees, predictability, and control to your financial plan. Go to bankonyourself.com slash stew. It's bankonyourself.com slash stew. Check it out now. Bankonyourself.com slash stew. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to bring in Angela Morabito back on the program. She is the former press secretary for the U.S. Department of Education and the spokesperson for the Defense of Freedom Institute. Angela, how's it going? Hi, Stu. Doing well. Great to be with you. Uh, Great uh, to have you on, especially because of this report that happened yesterday. I think it's really, really important. We went through some of the details yesterday, but I'm curious to see what you took. What's the most important thing from this report about COVID, uh, the lockdowns and schools? This report is just so sad, but it's vindication for America's parents who knew that virtual learning might as well have meant you're virtually not learning anything at all. That students whose schools reopened sooner did better. Uh, that uh, this shows us that math instruction has just gone way down a hill. This is a historic drop in math scores for fourth and eighth graders. But the one stat that sticks out the most to me is that only is that one in three eighth graders are functionally illiterate. That to me declares an educational state of emergency in this country. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've been beating up on the New York Times the last couple of days because of their coverage on this and so many other things. And their coverage on this particular story, they seem to have it first. It seemed to be the the place that the, the administration went to release it. And they were very clear, like, look, you can't look at this. It can't be red states and blue states. That's not what you see here. There's no real pattern. I mean, California was the biggest lockdown state, and they did okay in some of these measures. They went out of their way before we could see the data to say there was no trend. And then you look at the trends and it's clear as day that the states that did not lock down as long performed much better. And the opposite was also true. 
That is absolutely accurate. The left-wing spin machine is working overtime on these results, but they're absolutely indefensible. I've been following what Randy Weingarten, the head of one of the largest teachers unions, has to say about this, and she's somehow arguing, one, that they fought to reopen schools, which is an outright lie, and two, that school closures weren't bad for students in the first place. Also, we see in this data an outright lie. So there is just no defending these results. This needs to be an inflection point for the school choice movement because there is one bright spot in the data, and that's that Catholic schools and Department of Defense schools actually did okay. Catholic schools, you know, it's not sunshine and roses all the way around. Of course, this is a very sad report, but we know that they were able to blunt some of the effects of the lockdowns uh, as, as it impacted their students. And that's because Catholic schools by and large reopened sooner than the public schools around them. So this is uh, a moment where we all ought to recognize, regardless of politics, that in-person school is the way to go. Lockdowns, especially prolonged lockdowns, were a real mistake. Yeah, you know, we uh, I looked a lot yesterday at the difference, how much learning loss occurred from state to state. And, and you really do see a, a very clear trend there. If you want to check out all the data, you can check it out from yesterday's program. Um, but you bring up a really important point that the numbers overall are really bad. Like it's not just the loss from uh, the pandemic. It's the overall picture. The overall picture is a picture of failure, isn't it? That is exactly right, and and I wish it wasn't, but you're so, so spot on. Uh, I had the honor of serving in the Department of Education under the previous administration, and I remember being part of the nation's report card announcement in 2019. And I looked over these numbers and I saw how terrible they were, and I went, oh, the test must be really hard. Surely it can't be that bad. So I stood at my desk and I went online. I'd, I'd encourage everyone to do it. You can go to nationsreportcard.gov and actually take some of the practice questions. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, just how little we are asking of America's schools in terms of what they actually teach our students. These results have never been great. They've gone from bad to worse. Uh, but right now, this is this is a five alarm fire that people need to recognize. And it's not spread evenly across the country. The achievement gap is now wider than it was pre-pandemic. It's people who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, who are the least likely to have educational freedom, who have been harmed the most by pandemic-related school closures. Mm. And why is that? Why is there such a disparity between communities? Because that's it's quite clear in the data as well. We have the teachers unions to thank for that. Statistically, uh, places where teachers unions had a, had a really large and powerful presence, those schools stayed closed for longer. We know that school reopenings were were. Uh, absolutely necessary, but they're also only half the battle, that it would be a real misstep if all we did post-COVID was send kids back to the same schools that were failing them back in early March of 2020. This is a real call for reform beyond reopening. Uh, but yes, this is absolutely a, a union-driven issue that is uh, widening the achievement gap and making things worse for students who are most in need. You make such a great point there. And, and this frustrated me throughout the entire pandemic period where we, at least, you know, conservatives would gather and they'd say, hey, we need to open up these schools. These schools have got to be open. And it was a really good argument. Like, it was very much true. There was not any data that supported these schools staying closed for this long. 
And then at the same time, I'd hear these same shows. They'd go to commercial and they'd come back with like a teacher in uh, California who's, you know, dressed as this and doing this and teaching kids this. And it's like, well, wait, do we are we sure we want these schools to open? There has to be another alternative. It's not just sending these kids back to the same terrible schools that they've been dealing with for a long time. A solution is there. It's it's there for Republicans to grab the mantle on. And I've never had a better opportunity than right now. You are exactly right. This is the first time in my lifetime, Stu, that I've seen people around me become single issue voters on education. If you look what happened recently in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin's victory was driven in large part because parents were fed up with the schools. This is a kitchen table issue and it is not going away because as you mentioned, parents can't unsee what they've seen going on in our schools. When you see somebody who's using, I don't know, frog pronouns and demanding that five-year-olds validate their gender identity, that becomes impossible to ignore. And we also see these huge failure rates on the nation's report card. When you've got something like a third of, of eighth graders who, who can't read, I don't know how many people get held back in the eighth grade, but I know it's not a third. So what we know now, this is proof positive that students are getting shuffled along from grade to grade in, in far too many places, and nobody's really looking at whether or not they've learned anything. So this is a, a moment for parents to get more involved and to take a really long, hard look at what their students are actually uh, uh, getting out of their school days. So what's the policy prescription here? Because I think there's a lot to do with families and there's a lot to do with teachers and there's a lot to do with with schools generally. But from a policy perspective, I mean, is the approach in Arizona the, the right one? I mean, there, there seems to be some real encouraging developments there. What should we be doing? What's going on in Arizona is absolutely encouraging. They have opened up school choice for every student, no matter where they live or no matter what their family income is. I think that is a wonderful first step. But it's only the first step. It has to be followed up with a, a just an incredible drive toward educational quality. And that happens through curriculum transparency. Parents deserve to know what their kids are learning and how they are learning it. There's still so many places who will say, well, we're open for students, but we're going to slam the schoolhouse door in the face of parents. And that is the wrong move. So we need people who not only have the freedom to make that school choice, but who are armed with the right information to make a great choice for their kids. When we've got those two things in place, schools are actually going to have to compete with one another as they should. Just as competition boosts performance in business, it boosts performance in education as well. And we see this uh, in, in test scores, not, not in this batch, but in, in other uh, studies where it's been looked at how do students do in places where education freedom exists versus places where it doesn't. When you line up those numbers, the mathematical case is, is so, so clear. I would hope that even someone who's suffering through a public school math education would be able to see those benefits. <laughs> yeah, you'd think so. You'd think so. But we shouldn't ask too much. Um, the, the, the elections are, what, two weeks away from today. Uh, it's still close. You know, we were told there was all this momentum on the left and everyone was going to run to the polls because they wanted to vote for pro-choice issues and all these other things. And I think, you know, the issues like inflation, 
uh, the issues uh, like education, like crime, have been, I think, successfully uh, adopted and, and talked about by Republicans. I think they've done a, a relatively good job this campaign highlighting important issues rather than focusing on nonsense. But I have not, I, I am surprised after the last couple of years that we do not see a really big on the marquee approach from Republicans saying school choice, school choice, school choice. You don't have to live the life you've lived over the past couple of years. It's been talked about by you know good organizations like yours, but I feel like the Republican Party hasn't really adopted it as much as I, I, I want them to. Am I wrong on that or are they doing it and I'm not, not noticing? You're not wrong. The critical piece here is that every state is a little bit different. So instead of one national across the board, this is how it's going to be solution. The Republicans has sort of the unglamorous role here of returning education policy back to the state and local level where it really belongs. That to me is the true conservative solution. And while it doesn't make for a great marquee headline, it does empower parents at the state and local level to actually step up and make the changes that are need, needed in their community. So the fight in California looks really different than the fight that's going on in Texas or really in any other state because state policies are, are the ones that's kind of shaping education policy. Um, and it should be that way, but it means that um, there is no just one size fits all solution. Sure. I think a one size fits all solution was how we got in this mess. Yeah, and I'm by no means I'm suggesting a one size fits all. I mean, but you know, crime is also a local issue more than it's a national issue. But it's been elevated by the party as a talking point. As you know, every candidate is talking about crime. Crime is generally speaking a local issue, but an important one. You know, and I bring this up because you know I live in Texas, right? And you know, I see what's going on in Arizona, and I ask myself, how does Texas not have this policy already? Like how? I don't understand it. I don't understand why every red state in the country has not already already passed this, because I, I think when people go to uh, the polling booth this this uh, election, especially when they're voting for governor, they should realize that the most important decision that probably every governor will ever make was what they did to your freedom over the past couple of years. They, you saw the difference between red and blue state and how they handled that in schools and, and in life in general. That's such a crucial thing. And I'm surprised that Republicans haven't moved faster to say, look, we need these solutions in red states at the very least. You know, we might not be able to get them through in every blue state, but every red state, at the very least, should be showing that there is an argument, there is another choice, and this is the direction the country should go in. Yeah, I am right there with you. And I think it should be more than just red states, because when you look at the polling numbers, it's clear that school choice is not a partisan issue. It's a parent issue. This is as close to a consensus issue as anything in, Amer in the American public sphere today. So the idea that schools need to be inherently political uh, ju just is not right. It's, it's unfortunate that so far only the red states are really kind of taking up this banner. But if you want that marquee slogan, I think it's got to be students first, families, parents in the driver's seat. Uh, that might not sound <laughs> super great right now, but I think that uh, students first is absolutely a winning message for anyone who's willing to pick that up and run with it, because that encompasses school choice and it also encompasses school quality. So like what we came up with. I think you may be hearing me repeat that a lot more often. I like it. And it stands exactly in the face of the teachers unions, because that's what the other side is doing. That's their priority. Uh, conservative priority should be the students themselves. I think that's kind of important. Angela Morabito, spokesperson for the Defense of Freedom Institute. Thanks so much for coming back on the program and walking us through all this. It's my pleasure, Stu. Thank you for having me.
So when it comes to liberals in Congress, they, they don't want term limits. They, they don't want that. But they will fight for term limits on anybody that's not them, particularly Supreme Court justices. They want the, the Supreme Court to be limited right now. And why do they want that? Because the people who would get hit with the limits first are people like Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Remember their whole pitch on packing the court. Now they're going down this other road. They're, they're trying everything they can to get out of this problem they see as essentially constitutional law. Uh, since Democrats are working hard to pass court purging, court packing, all these other things, we need to work even harder to stop it. And we love the First Liberty Institute. They've done great work when it comes to religious freedom, and they're trying to make sure the Supreme Court stays the Supreme Court. And we'd stop the coup, basically, the left is attempting right now. Uh, we don't want this, the Supreme Court taken over by political hacks. That's not the right way to go here. SupremeCoup.com, SupremeCoup.com. If you go there, you can help support First Liberty Institute and their efforts in this area and so many others. SupremeCoup.com, SupremeCoup.com. Tonight might be the biggest night in the ramp up to the election, at least so far, as we have the one and only debate between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Now, this date was pushed off. Fetterman didn't agree for a very long time to do a debate. He finally said, OK, we can do the debate on October 25th, which, as you might imagine, a lot of people have already voted by now. So this is an intentional thing by Fetterman. He knows this is going to be rough for him. He's going to have a screen to be able to read the words transcribed in real time because he's not able to understand language. He's seemingly not able to speak a good chunk of the time. And, you know, if, if you if you haven't really followed this race and you haven't seen how difficult a time John Fetterman is having, I want you to listen to a clip from the campaign trail and you make up your mind. What is wrong with demanding for an easy, safe kind of their income, a path to a safe place for them to win, or excuse me, to, to work. But there's no indication that there's anything cognitively wrong with him. <laughs> I had to leave that part on. It's from ABC News. I, they play, they, they're the ones that put that clip in the podcast. And then right after we're like, oh, by the way, there's no, no indication. Anything went wrong whatsoever. Don't worry about it. Uh, so this will be an interesting one. I mean, you know, look, there's a lot on the line here. And there's two things to think about here if you're Dr. Oz. Number one, you have a chance for finally the people of Pennsylvania to see John Fetterman without every net they've created for him uh, that the campaign has built. I mean, the campaign's built walls around him. They built a net in case he falls. They've, they've really done everything to keep him out of the public uh, sphere. And you still have moments like we just heard the incoherent ramblings. That's a big problem. So one, there's a real opportunity for Dr. Oz. Number two, there's probably going to be some sympathy for John Fetterman. And Dr. Oz has to be careful to not step in it. You know, you don't, you don't want to come off as a jerk. He's a doctor. You don't want to come off as a jerk in the middle of the debate. You want to kind of let him go out there and show exactly who he is and go after him on policy. I mean, there's a lot to go after with Fetterman on policy. Dr. Oz should be a pretty good communicator in a situation like that. We will see. It's going to be a big one uh, tonight. Lisa Murkowski, another a big race in Alaska. Now, this one's probably going to be a Republican seat, and it will be. Uh, however, you have the Trump-endorsed candidate. You have Lisa Murkowski, and they're going up against each other. And, and, and the Murkowski thing has always been, okay, she's a Republican, you know, but she's moderate. She'll let you down a good chunk of the time, but at least she's better than a Democrat. Well, she's now voting for the Democrat over Sarah Palin. And I hate the way this is worded because this is not how their system works. This is not how the election works. 
in um, uh, Alaska. Right now, there are three people who could win this congressional seat. The Democrat, Sarah Palin, and another Republican who's much more moderate. If Lisa Murkowski wanted to vote for a moderate Republican, she could go with Begich. She's not doing that because she essentially seems to be an actual Democrat at this point. She's going to be voting for uh, the Democrats and uh, in the in the actual election. I, my expectation is in that race, by the way, that the Democrat does win. I, I would be honestly at this point surprised because of the way this is uh, falling. And of course, this is a new system. So. Difficult to know for sure, but that's where I think this might uh, be going. I want to highlight another uh, clip from uh, Joe Biden. Now, this is Biden talking about his what he calls a law that was passed by a few, few votes, the student loan debacle. We if you watch the show, you know, that was not a law. It was not passed by a few points, uh, but that's what Joe Biden seems to think. Watch. You probably are aware I've just signed a law that's being challenged by my Republican no, colleagues. No, you have not signed a law. And the same law. people who got PPP loans during the, for up to close to, in some cases, up to five, six $600,000. They have no problem with that. What does that have to do with anything? The individuals in Congress got those. Mm-hmm. But um, what we've provided for is, right. if you went to school, if you qualify for a Pell Grant, Pell Grant. you qualify for... Two thousand. Excuse me. Right. Uh, oh, excuse you, me. you qualify for twenty thousand dollars in debt forgiveness. Okay. Secondly, mm-hmm. if you don't have one of those loans, you just get ten thousand written off. Okay. It's passed. I got it passed by a vote or two, and it's in effect. Three possibilities here. Number one, he's so incoherent he doesn't know that he didn't pass a law. Number two, just blatantly lying to win votes, acting as if he passed a law he did not pass. Number three, and I think the scariest one. His aides told him a law passed. He signed what he thought was a law because his aides said, oh, yeah, no, we got it. It's a law. It's not an executive order. They're, it's a law. They're just being uh, irrational. Um, if, that's probably the scariest one, right? Like if they're just, they're like, just, just, just tell him it was a law. If he's arguing, just tell him it's a law. Who cares? He's not going to know. That's frightening. I mean, really, all of it's frightening. Um, but by the way, shocking in the uh, in the world of the CNN, uh, the changes at CNN, the I don't know rehab. Uh, they are they actually posted a fact check over this. Yeah, facts first. Biden's claims are incorrect. Biden created his his student debt forgiveness initiative through executive action, not through legislation. So he did not sign a law and didn't get the initiative passed by any number of votes. Holy crap, what is going on in this country? I I don't even know. Um, And uh, let's see, let me give you a couple more here before we go to break. Uh, In 14 days, the American people face a choice. A new op-ed at CNN from Joe Biden, basically just blathering. I I counted, he has 37 links. Do you think Joe Biden sat down with a computer and linked to 37 different stories? Do you think he wrote this? I love the last one. It says, I'm absolutely confident that just as they did in 2020, the American people will again vote in record numbers. And he links to, I guess, the results from 2020. (laughs) Who? What intern did this for you, Joe? I'm not sure. And Joe Biden's marijuana pardons did not free a single federal prisoner. So another one of his pitches to win votes did absolutely nothing. Finally, let me go to this one. Uh, Biden will uh, warns the the economy will crash if the GOP wins control of Congress. This is his new pitch. He's coming out and telling you, hey, um, let me tell you, don't worry about it. Uh, if you put those guys in, uh, the whole economy is going to blow up. This makes you seem think that he's heard word 
probably from the same aide who lied to him about the bill, that the economy is going to crash either way. So we better start blaming Republicans right this second. So they really, uh, Democrats are in trouble. They need a coherent strategy, a coherent message to bring to the American people. And if I could, let me give you this suggestion. What is wrong with demanding Mm -hmm. for for an easy, an easy, safe, safe, kind kind of of their their income, income, a path path to a safe safe place for them to win, for them to win, or excuse me, to work, to work. But there's no indication that there's anything cognitively wrong with him. No indication whatsoever. All right, almost one out of every five Americans never have a chance to live outside the womb. We were just talking about John Fetterman and the debate that's going on tonight. He's one of the few, and I will give him, I guess, credit, although I'd like to say blame, for admitting the policies. And they asked him, hey, uh, do you have any restrictions whatsoever on the issue of abortion? And he said, no. No, not one restriction. 63 million babies have been aborted since Roe versus Wade was enacted and not one restriction. No one can think of any on the left. That's really, really strange. The Ministry of Preborn and Blaze Media are partnering to help rescue 50,000 babies from abortion in 2022. Their work is really, really important. And you can support them in this very, very important work. They're trying to put Planned Parenthood out of business. And uh, that's a good effort. I, I'm 100 percent. Uh, with them. If they, you just, they're basically showing uh, mothers, they're giving them free ultrasounds and showing them the results. And 80% of the time they say, yeah, I'm, I'm rethinking that whole abortion thing. That's great. They also support them after uh, the baby is born as well. Highly committed to life. That's right. Preborn. Uh, get involved with preborn right now. Uh, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Pound 250. The keyword is baby. Or you can go to preborn.com slash stew. Support this great organization, preborn.com slash stew. So the Kanye West empire really is collapsing now. Adidas has dropped him. Uh, Gap, it looks like they've dropped him. He's now fallen out of the billionaire list. Sad, sad day. Uh, Out of the billionaire list for Kanye. Look, this is a really disturbing story from beginning to end. Kanye West has real problems. Like he's, and this is the case with a lot of artists, honestly. Artists are very, very fragile and bizarre creatures. Many times they're struggling with all sorts of demons. Uh, and, and look, Kanye West was insane a long time ago. He's also insane now. The fact that he put on a red hat in between does not make him any less insane. That's just kind of who the guy is. He might be, if you like his music, you might think he's an artistic genius, but that does not make him the, uh, the arbiter of, of solid intellectual political thought. Now, I, you know, I don't like anybody being canceled. I don't think he should be taken off of uh, Twitter or any of those things. I will say, if I was uh, Adidas, I wouldn't want a guy who said he was going to go death con three on Jewish people to be the spokesperson for my company. I, I can kind of understand where they're coming from on this one. Uh, now, and then he taunted them afterward and said, hey, I can say all sorts of anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't cancel me. Uh, they changed their mind on that one. All of this being said, because I, I think it is important to understand, this is different than like a, a public speaking situation or your you know, banking. I don't support any of that stuff. A company, though, has, has a spokesperson for a reason to help, help them sell shoes. And if they don't want to be associated with this guy, they don't have to be. They can cancel his contract if, as long as they follow the terms of it. But beyond that, think of what would happen if Kanye didn't wear the red hat. 
Would, if he didn't wear the red hat, would this be happening to him? Even with what he said. Nick Cannon said all the same stuff on television. He, he, he still has two network shows. He said all the same stuff. Nobody did much of anything. He, got, he was suspended for a couple of weeks and he got his shows back. There is a different standard here and every single person should know it. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and click, uh, I don't know, uh, review. Give me five stars. I'd appreciate it. Also, you can go over to YouTube and click like, uh, click the follow button, click the bell. I mean, you're going to be working for the show, basically. You're, you're basically a full-time employee if you do all the things I ask you to do every single day. But we do appreciate it when you do it. Some comments coming in. Lauren says, more people need to know about this show. It's so good. Love, Stu. Glenn is lucky to have you. Yes, he is. Um, may God have mercy on our souls. Yes, the Biden. The Biden stuff is starting to get to everybody. Really enjoying your election coverage. Thank you so much. We're going to have more of it. Maybe we'll do another chalkboard uh, this week. We need to do a governor rundown as well. We'll get to that soon. Uh, and I love the stupid show five freaking stars. We do appreciate it when you take the time to review the show and spread it around because no one is going to know about it unless you tell them. So I'm too lazy to do it. So you, you do it for me. Um, BlazeTV.com slash Stu is the place to go. We're going to have election night coverage you are not going to want to miss. Promo code is Stu. We'll see you tomorrow.